0: Jesus, may we consciously, right now, set aside all other hopes, whatever we've been hoping in this week, this morning, our plans, our desires, our things, our way, our health, what we think is right and good, Lord, I pray that we would set aside hope in any and all of those things. And God, I pray that you would enable us now to reaffirm our hope is in you, in you alone. Jesus, that's the reason that we celebrate. We celebrate you this morning, that our hope is in you, not that we want it to be, but it is in you. And our hope is secure, it is sure, it is A hope that is anchored in you. You are the immovable one. You are the unshakable one. You are the almighty. You are the eternal one. So God, we set our hope in you because of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help each and every one of us this morning to, to set our eyes on you, Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. In your name we pray, amen. see Well, you're already seated, so. Welcome. Thanks for being here with us today. We are grateful that you would gather together on this first Sunday of Advent. We are gathering together to celebrate Jesus, as we always do. And there's something special about this season as we look forward to just a a few weeks from now celebrating the, the coming of Jesus because it changed everything for us. Now, often during the Advent season... We will do different series, but uh, as, as God would have it, we happen to be in the book of John, and it's all about Jesus. So we're staying right here in the book of John, because what we need to see most, as we think about Advent and the coming of Christ, is what Christ came to do in Christ's kingdom. So turn your Bibles to John 11. Turn your Bibles to John 11. We'll be reading chapter, uh, verses 45 to 54 this morning. This is God's holy, inspired word for you and I today. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This is God's holy word for us. Let's just pray that God would help us understand and apply this to our hearts. Father, we, we need your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we need your Holy Spirit to help us to, to focus on you, to hear from you, to enable us to, to see and hear, to open up our hearts. You are the one who reveals your words to us. You are the one who makes our dead hearts alive to begin with. So that we trust in you to enliven us today. To make your words alive, to give us hope in you. Lord, I pray that you would empower each and every person here by your spirit to hear your voice and respond. And Lord, would you empower and enable me to preach your words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer by heart? And Just raise your hand. How many know the Lord's Prayer by heart? Excellent. So, it's called the Lord's Prayer because it's what the Lord taught us about how to pray. He said, don't be like the hypocrites and, and completely, you know, repetitively praying all these vain things. And, but pray this way. He gives us a framework for praying. And, and in the very beginning, he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? So now, what's the next line? Anybody who knows it from heart, go ahead and say the next. What's the next line? Just say it out loud. Excellent. Good, good. Not exceptionally confident, but we'll have a chance at the end to say the Lord's Prayer together again. You were all correct. Yeah, the, the second line, right after we pray that that our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be or holy be your name. Wait, would we make your name holy? Would your name be made holy in all the earth? The very next line, it's an important line, is your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, now why did Jesus teach us to pray like that? Why did he teach us your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, of course, but I believe that Jesus taught us to pray for God's kingdom, come, for God's will to be done, because it really is the best thing for us, because we need His kingdom, we need His rule, His reign in our lives, we need His rule and His reign in the world around us, right? If if you have been alive for the last year, it should make you want His kingdom, right? (laughs) Because it's crazy, (laughs) Life is crazy, and has been crazy for like the last nine months. People have seemed to have lost their minds on on every end of the spectrum, no matter where you fall. Life's a little nutty right now, and it's hard to know what's right, what's wrong, whose perspectives are accurate, whose perspectives are inaccurate, and, and you know what? We can all try to want our own kingdoms, and what we really need, we need His kingdom to come. We need His rule, His reign, His will to be done. That's what we really need. I think the other, the other reason why Jesus taught us to pray that right after he taught us to, to make God's name holy was because you know what we are tempted most to do. We are tempted most to seek our kingdom, our way, what we want, our will. Right? Think about your week this past week. Think about your plans. What kind of plans did you make this past week? You don't know, have to say that out loud, but just thinking through. Okay, what pl- kind of plans? What, what were you seeking to do? You were, you, you were all, they're all good things, right? You're trying to probably prepare for the holidays. You're maybe planning for, invite. do we invite family? Do we not invite family? What does that look like? And we're trying to just orchestrate things in our jobs and our future. And maybe you're thinking about money and finances right now. Maybe you're looking at the stock market. Maybe you're thinking about who's gonna be president and all this other stuff here. And, and, and often what can happen is we can get so absorbed into our own plans and our own kingdom that we're not really thinking much about His kingdom and praying for His kingdom to come, His rule and reign to come in our lives, not just out there, right? Because often we can want God's kingdom to come out there to get people, right? You know, God, let your kingdom come, like set them straight. But what we need is His kingdom to come here, His rule, His reign to come here, His will to be done in our lives. Because I'm, I'm tempted, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to seek my own kingdom. How are you? How are you tempted to live for your own kingdom? You ever tempted to want to protect your own place? Want to protect your own position, your your home, your work, your way of life, your way of doing things? You you ever tempted to want to protect those things? How about, you ever want to be tempted to protect your ideals about our nation? You ever tempted there? If, if not, I... I don't, I don't know if you've been reading the news. What if someone came and took away our place? What if he came, somebody came and took away some, some authority came and took away our place, our, our job, our, our kingdom? What if somebody took away our nation? You know, God forbid. What if somebody were to do that? The question is, could we and would we live for His kingdom still? If somebody took away all those things from you, if somebody took away your plans, your kingdom, your nation, this nation, if somebody took it all away and it was all gone, could we still and would we still live for His kingdom? That's the question. It's a very real question because it's, it's what they were confronted with back then, and it's still the same thing we're confronted with now, just maybe not the same way. We don't face the same threat that they faced. You see, Israel was was living under Roman rule. Now, the Romans, they were very smart. This, this era of peace that they were living in called the Pax Romana, it, it lasted from about 40 years prior to Jesus and about 350 years after Jesus. And... The Romans were very smart. What they did was they came and they conquered a place and then they said, hey, okay, we'll let you self-rule as long as you abide by our rules and keep the peace and don't cause trouble and you submit to us and then we'll let you self-rule. And so Israel was in that place where they were self-ruling, but they were threatened by this Jesus who threatened to turn everything upside down. And so when we read this account, it's easy to distance ourselves thinking we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't react to that because Jesus was clearly revealed to be a messiah. We wouldn't reject him like that. We wouldn't live for our own kingdom until we start to consider questions like, what happens if someone came and took away our kingdom and took away our nation? Will we want to live for his kingdom? You know, you wonder how could they reject his rule when they claim to want to live for God. They they claim to want the messiah, right? Doesn't that what the Jews were all about? They prophecies for thousands of years leading up to wanting the messiah looking forward to the coming of the messiah but you know what i don't think it's hard for us to relate to them if we're honest sometimes this can seem distant right and the question that they were faced with and that we're faced with this is is will we believe in jesus and will we accept all that it entails will we submit our lives to his kingdom no matter what the cost or will we try to protect our own That's what they were faced with. Isn't that the same thing we're faced with today? It just looks a little different, maybe comes in a little more subtly. Will we believe in Jesus and accept all that it entails and submit our lives to His kingdom, no matter what the cost? Or will we try to protect our own? The very first account, the first thing we see in this account in John is, is that it says that many believed in Him. That's encouraging to begin with. And you think, oh, great, this is a really optimistic passage. But, you know, John, he doesn't leave us there. He's realistic. He says many believed in him, and that was awesome because, after all, they had just seen Jesus. In case you weren't here last week, they had just seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead four days. He was in the tomb. He was rotting. He was stinking. He'd been dead four days, beyond hope. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, he calls to his sheep and made him alive. And Lazarus comes out, and he walked. So it's no surprise to read that people who followed Mary there to the tomb, that they saw this happen. It's no surprise to read that many believe It's surprising to believe that not everyone believed. How could you not, right? But they weren't living to see the Messiah's kingdom. They were living to see their own kingdom. And so it says that, but in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And you think what women remember these are people who are following Mary to the tomb these were Mary and Martha's friends these were Mary and Martha and Lazarus friends these were people who wanted to see Lazarus well to begin with they saw him die Jesus made him alive and then these were people who were upset about it you know what kind of what kind of people are these right they might they weren't really friends of Mary and Martha they were seeking their own way, It's clear from this passage. They didn't really care about Lazarus and his family, and, and even more surprising is, is the fact that in the face of overwhelming, compelling evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, they stubbornly refused to believe. And, and really, this, the first idea that we want to, to look at in this passage is that protecting our kingdom plans, it keeps us from submitting to Jesus' kingdom. That's what we see here with these people, that they are, they are protecting their kingdom plans, and it keeps them sum- from submitting to Jesus' kingdom. Look at verse 47. It says, So the chief priests, they heard about this from the Pharisees, and they, they gathered this council, this, this Sanhedrin, this, this, this countless ruling council that ruled over all of Israel, not just politically, but also spiritually, culturally, in every way. They governed Israel. This, they gathered together this council of 70 people. It's called the Sanhedrin. And they said, well, What are we do to do this? Because this guy's performing all these signs. Now, what would you have done if you, by the way, if you, if you saw Jesus through all kinds of signs. He's, he's already healed the sick, he's made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He's, he's made the paralytic get up and walk. This guy's never walked before. He's, he is, he's done what no one can do. He makes the dead alive. How would you respond if you saw all these things happen? And you might think, oh, I, I believe, right? Well, maybe you would or if you're protecting your own kingdom, you'd respond like they did here. So they gathered this whole council. This council was supposed to guide Israel in in living in a way that was pleasing to God. And how do we apply God's law to our lives? How do we live for God? How do we live in anticipation of the Messiah and his coming kingdom? And yet this Sanhedrin, they don't they don't do that at all. And they hear the report about Jesus and they They hear that not only has He done all these signs, He's raised the dead to life. This is something that only Yahweh can do, who has the power over life and death. And yet, they don't even discuss it. Isn't that surprising? This is the ruling Sanhedrin, this council of spiritually mature elders. And they they hear about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They don't contest it. They actually acknowledge that Jesus has done all these things. They didn't start off saying, hey... Jesus is a charlatan, he didn't do any of these things. They didn't say, no, it was a trick, he didn't really raise them. No, they, they actually believed that he did all those things. And that's even more shocking. He says, what do we do? For this man performs many signs. Now, even that word was an indictment. Signs of the Messiahship. Signs of who he was. Signs attesting to his work, his ministry, his message. And they ask, what are we to do? For he performs many signs. Now, at first you think, well, well that's, that's a good question, right? So in light of all that Jesus has done, he makes the dead to, to rise, to walk. Uh, what, what should we do? Now, the good responsibility is, well, we should submit to him. He's the Messiah. We should live for him. But they don't ask that. Look in verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And you think, well, that's good news, right? But then they say, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They weren't cheering him on. Shockingly, they weren't looking for, how can we respond? They weren't saying, hey, how do we repent? We've been wrong. All He's doing all these things, and he did what only God can do. Surely, we must repent. How do we lead the people to follow the Messiah? No, they don't do that. Instead, what are they doing? They, their hearts are revealed. Their true nature, their true motives, they're revealed here, right? What people want to live for today is revealed as well. How about you, when your kingdom's challenged, when your plans are challenged, what do you try to do? Do you try to protect? You say, God, you know, not my kingdom come, but but Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come. You know, when repenting and believing in Jesus, it threatens one's place and position in the world. It reveals what they're truly living for. If if your place and your position, your power, your prestige, your potential to make money is threatened, it reveals what we are living for, doesn't it? They were happy thinking about the idea of Jesus as the Messiah that they wanted, but now that he was proving to be someone different than they wanted, it was inconvenient for them. They wanted to get rid of him. They didn't like the idea of Jesus receiving all the glory and assuming his rightful place as Messiah. They didn't like the idea that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted, they expected. He wasn't coming to make all their dreams come true. He was coming to establish his rule and his reign, and that often was different from their expectations. And how true that is in our lives too, right? How often his kingdom, his rule, and his reign is different than our expectations for our own lives, because it's often painful. Why? Because we have another kingdom that's warring within us. Now, if you've been made new, we're a new creation in Christ Jesus, but this old nature, it still remains, and it battles with us. This desires, this old kingdom nature, it still remains, and it battles, and it says, I want my way, I want to live for myself. That battles living for Jesus, and we say, okay, great, what do we do when we encounter that? We submit to him and say, no, Now, the good news is that if you're a believer, you can do that. You can say no to those earthly desires. When you're faced with the choice of giving up what you believe and what you hold most dear, when you are faced with giving up your ideals about your nation, if believing in Jesus meant you have to give up everything you hold most dear, your place, your position, your nation, would you do it? Put yourself in their shoes. If, if someone threatened your entire way of life and you thought they were going to make everything unstable and you wouldn't have your, your job, you wouldn't have your position, the temple might be torn down, your nation might be taken away, the Romans might come in with their iron fist and rule, what would you do? Now, you can easily think, well, I wouldn't do that. But of course, we're tempted in the same way. So clearly this council of Jewish leaders, they did not want to submit to Jesus. Their place was important to them. Now that place was primarily the temple, but we see that it was also revealed to be they were holding on to something because that place meant something to them, not just because they wanted to worship God, but because it meant something about their positions and who they were and their influence and their ability and their power and their prestige and their income and, and then their nation, the stability. It, it meant something about, all of their ideals. Even though the Romans were clearly ruling all of Israel, the Jewish leaders, they were, they were allowed this, this great deal of autonomy, and they didn't want that to be taken away from them. And they were afraid. Like so many political leaders today, serving their own interests and their own agenda. If Jesus took his rightful place as the Messiah, and they acknowledged him, they'd have to listen to him. They'd have to obey him. They'd have to... And he would get all the glory. And you know what? Their earthly nation might be taken away from them still. They'd have to admit they were wrong. They would have to repent and submit to Jesus. It was hard. Not only were they worried about giving up their place, though, they were worried about their ideals of what it meant to be a nation. They said, you know, he'll come and take away our place in our nation. And don't think you're too far removed from that right now. You might be concerned about whatever, whoever comes into power, taking away your ideals of a nation, your, your identity, your national identity. But whose kingdom will we live for? They wanted to protect their Jewish way of life. They want a change of leaderships where the Romans might completely wipe away their national identity. And, and what we see next is it leads to something. This, this protection, protecting our own kingdom, not only does it lead to not living for his kingdom, it, it leads to evil plans. Protecting our kingdom, it leads to evil plans. That's what we see. Living for our kingdom, protecting our kingdom, it leads down the darkest path. It leads to evil plans. It says, says Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he takes this pragmatic approach, right? He's the high priest, right? He's supposed to lead people into worshiping and loving and serving God. And what does he do? He, he's a politician. This says one of them, Caiaphas, in verse 49, look down your Bibles, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I can imagine the response in the Sanhedrin, right? There's 70 people there, and maybe Caiaphas is the 71st. He's presiding over this group, and he tells them, you don't know anything at all. You all are morons. You don't know anything. He says, nor do you understand. You don't get it. You, you don't understand how life really works. You don't understand how things really work. You've got to take a pragmatic approach here. And isn't that what so many people today call us to? pragmatic approach. He says, you don't understand. You don't understand that it's better for you. Let's just take the pragmatic approach. It's better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. This is ridiculous. It doesn't matter that he's innocent. It doesn't matter that he's not guilty. It doesn't matter that Jesus has not sinned in any way, that he's completely perfect and righteous. It doesn't matter that this one man, he's done all these signs. It doesn't matter that this one man has attested to the fact that he's the Messiah. It doesn't matter because we need to be pragmatic here. We need to say, what makes the most amount of sense here? And that way of thinking, by the way, it will lead you to an evil plan. Beware when we start with a pragmatic approach. Beware when you start thinking about situations and about life and about what you should do just from mere pragmatism. Start with thinking about his kingdom and then he'll lead you in the way you should go. He says, you don't understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people. You know, I can just think about this unfolding, like this great movie drama, and there's this this innocent man. And he says, you know what? It's better the whole, this man die than that the nation shouldn't perish. They knew he was innocent. They knew he was doing these things. They knew that he was attesting to his messiahship. And he was proposing sacrificing this innocent man at the altar of expediency. What are you willing to sacrifice? It brings a question up. We should ask ourselves, so what are we willing to sacrifice at the altar of expediency in our own lives? It might reveal where we're protecting our own kingdom. Like the way D.A. Carson comments on it, He says, so he died, but the nation perished Anyway. Right? So Jesus died, but the nation perished anyway, not because of Jesus' activity, but because of the constant mad search. Listen to this, the constant mad search for political solutions, where there was little spiritual renewal. Justice is sacrificed to expediency. Now listen, the, the reader get the wrong idea. John is not saying that man's plans rule supreme and that really Jesus died because Caiaphas planned it. That's, that's not what John is saying. He's showing that, yeah, they, they unjustly actually held a trial without Jesus there. They convicted him without him there. But it wasn't ultimately Caiaphas' plans. That's not why Jesus died. And John wants us to see that what, it, what really is happening is that God's kingdom plans reign supreme. It's God's kingdom plans that reign supreme. It's, it's not Caiaphas's plans ultimately that put Jesus to death. No, it's God's kingdom plans that reign supreme. How do we know that? Because God put the very words into Caiaphas' mouth. That's what John tells us. Look in verse 51. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He prophesied. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know this was inspired by God. He didn't know that God had put these very words in his mouth. But God put these words in his mouth as the high priest, as the spiritual leader. He spoke better than he knew. And he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. I love the way a guy named Leslie Newbegin put it when he comments on this passage. He says, these small and frightened men clothed in the robes of authority which are in fact only a covering for pitiful weakness are the unwitting instruments of a mighty divine purpose we can be sure god's plans reign supreme so even even in the worst Even in the worst of plans, even in the worst of plans that that man's kingdom puts in place, even when people are protecting their own kingdom, living for that, when it looks like politics are reigning, when it looks like this political leader, this high priest, when it looks like his plans are supreme. No, John's saying, look, what's really happening? He said that because God put those words in his mouth. God's plans are reigning supreme. This is all a part of God's plan. And that's good to know. God uses corrupt politician to carry out his purposes. By the way, isn't it, isn't it good to know that corrupt politicians and their plans are not what rules in the end? God rules. Isn't it good to know that God even uses those in power who have wrong motives to carry out his purposes? High priest Caiaphas, he thought by sacrificing Jesus, it would save their place and their nation. But what he didn't realize, that was by sacrificing Jesus, he was playing a part of God's plan all along. God who sits in heaven laughs. Caiaphas, you think you're, you think you're the one calling the shots here. I'm going to put words in your mouth. You don't even know what you're saying. New <laughs> you beginning, so he, he says again, the high priest fears for the destruction of the temple, but does not know that Jesus is, is himself the true temple and that though the Jews will indeed destroy that temple, it will be raised up to become the place to which all the nations of the earth will come to worship as the prophets had foretold. You see, God had already ordained that Jesus would die for his people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and this is the very plan and we've been leading up to this all along jesus has been talking about the fact that he will give his life he is the lamb of god he is the one who sacrifices himself his own life for the sake of the sheep we've we've been reading all about that how jesus is the good shepherd but he's not the good shepherd who leaves us alone he sacrifices he gives his own life he lays his life down and he's intentionally doing that here where man should have submitted to him. Jesus is submitting to this evil plans knowing that this is all a part of God's plan. And God's not interested just in saving the people of, from the nation of Israel alone. Here's the glorious thing. If you are here and you are not born as a Jew as an Israelite, then here's some e- even better news for you. Now it's good news if you are a Jew. But it's great news for those of us who had no way to be a part of that nation before, we can now be brought in. Look in verse 52, it says, "And not for the nation, speaking of Israel only, but also to gather into one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad." You, you remember the, the scripture says, "All we like sheep have gone astray." All of us who've gone astray, all of us who've scattered abroad from every nation. Jesus' plan, God's plan, God's plan was that through Caiaphas, through man's evil plans, God would bring about this. One nation to gather into his own the children of God from every nation who are scattered abroad. This is the fulfillment of John 10, where it talks about Jesus says, I've got sheep, not a, they're not a part of a different pasture that I'm going to bring in. They're, they're not a part of this flock, I'm going to bring them in and make one flock, one pasture. One children of God. This is the fulfillment of the good shepherd dying to rescue the lost sheep who have been scattered. Sin has scattered everyone, yet God brings us together in Christ Jesus. And His death means that everyone who believes in Jesus for eternal life will be gathered as children of God. Everyone who was once not a part of His kingdom can now become a part of God's kingdom by repenting and believing in Jesus, submitting to Him. And Jesus, I, I've lived my own way. I, I, don't, I don't want to do that anymore. That's it's, it's led to death, to destruction. That's, that's how Adam went astray. Adam and Eve living their own ways, living for what they wanted, living for their kingdom. And, and now I, I want to confess, that that's, that's not the way I want to live anymore. I want to live for you, God. But Lord, I, I can't even do that unless you make me alive. Would you forgive me of all my sins? Would you make me clean? And then would you make me alive like you made Lazarus alive? Would you enliven my spirit so I can respond to you? And then we could become a part of his children, being adopted into his household. The Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they didn't realize that. They didn't, they thought that their, their plans reigned supreme. So in verse 53, look down your Bible, it says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, this egregious, if you were a good Jew reading this, you would be shocked, because here's the reason why. You were not allowed to. To invo- when cases involving capital punishment, you couldn't give a guilty verdict on the same day of the trial. It was also against their laws, their own laws, that the high priest was supposed to uphold, that, that a trial be held and a verdict be given on the same day without the defendant being present. They unlawfully planned to put Jesus to death, but they didn't realize that, no, this was actually God's plan all along. God's plan was driving them to the place. God was the one orchestrating this great rescue mission from every tribe and tongue and nation. God had bigger plans than their nation to bring into his people, into his children, from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. You see, Jesus had to die. Not because of Caiaphas, but because the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, had planned for Jesus to take the place of sinful humanity. In sinful humanity, we, we need a substitute because there's no way we can pay the price for all the sins we've committed on our own. There's no way we can be made clean. We must have a substitute. The sinless Savior had to die. That's what he came to do, to create this new people, this new nation, to make all those who are not his sheep a part of his flock. And so, yes, it's far better that Jesus willingly die than we should die eternally. it says in verse 64, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. All this happened because Jesus was ultimately in control of his own destiny. They planned to put him to death. He, he went away to the wilderness. It wasn't yet his plan. It wasn't yet his time. It was near Passover. It, it was near Passover. All this happened just a short time before the Passover feast. of was held perhaps only two weeks or so beforehand. I don't know the exact time frame, but yet it was not yet part of God's plan for him to give his life. And so he goes away to the wilderness. He's not fearful. But his time had not yet come when Jesus, the true temple, would offer himself as the true Passover lamb. And do away with their temple. Do away with their place. Do away with that earthly kingdom remove the need for any future sacrifices forever. As we read this count, uh, we, we need to step back and say, okay, what, whose kingdom were we living for? Whose kingdom are we trying to establish? Are we really that different? Are we protecting and seeking our own kingdom, our place, our nation, our plans? Will we acknowledge that we've lived? If, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, here is what you need to be confronted with. Will you acknowledge that you have lived yourself, that you've gone your own way and we've rebelled against God our maker and we deserve death. Will we acknowledge that yes, Jesus is the Messiah that we truly need and will we submit to him? See, we deserve the punishment of death for all of our sins and yet it is far better that Jesus die for us. In fact, it's the only way. It's the only way we can be made clean from all of our sins and be reconciled to God and brought into his kingdom. And him giving us a new heart and new desires is the only way that we can begin to live for his kingdom. And here's the good news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's given you a new heart. He's given you new motives and a new desire. So for you, if you've been convicted this morning about living for another kingdom, just repent. God, I've been, I've been living for my own plans. Let me, let me pray again in your prayer. The great irony is that they were right. It was better for Jesus to die for them than that the whole nation perish. But by Jesus dying, it was the end of their place. By Jesus dying, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every color of skin, every ethnicity would be gathered into one as the children of God who are scattered abroad. In closing, I want to ask the band to go ahead and come up, but before we sing, is as the band comes up, I want you to go ahead and put up the words. I want us to respond by praying the Lord's Prayer together. So if we can do that, just read the one of you. Maybe you know a different version. Let's just read the one on the screen together, in case you're wondering about this from the Bible. So they make that one up. Let's read. The Lord's Prayer together. And as we do, let us ask Him in our hearts to rule and reign supreme. So let's read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.